Graphic design empire. Take control of it. Do you know what? These are really great questions. If you want it, you're just going to find a way to get it. Hello and welcome to the Creative Waffle podcast. My name's Millie and I'm joining Mark today to talk to Paula Scher. The new co-host of the Creative Waffle podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, we hope you enjoyed the podcast. Uh, it's a really good chat. Uh, we, we chat with her about all sorts of things, including the drug use. Uh, so I hope you enjoy it. Leave a comment down below. Uh, please like, subscribe, wherever you are. Um, a, a rating on iTunes would be really appreciated. Apple Podcast would be really appreciated. Um, let's get into the podcast. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> How are you doing today, Paula? Well, about as well as you do do in this condition. Yeah. Um, yeah. How how is uh, lockdown for Pentagram? Well, I think it's difficult on everybody. I think uh, some people are more comfortable with it than others, and it depends upon a lot about your comfort working away from your staff and not being able to see your clients, both of which are pretty awful. Yeah. Yeah, that human interaction, and we talked a little bit about it before the podcast, and, um, and meeting people is, is huge for, for designers well to get an understanding of what they want. So, yeah, I can understand it. Um, it also, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, you growing up in, in the 70s and, and being around the New York design scene. So if, like, if we could start with that and what it was like to spend so much time around amazing designers. Well, I, was, I, I met in a class with my portfolio right out of art school. And um, I was in my 20s, early 20s, when I was dating him and then married him for the first time when I was 25. So in that period of time, I really met everybody. And I was incredibly intimidated by all of them. Uh, and uh, it was difficult because I was so much younger than the group. And of course, the wives of other designers didn't like me. So I just was, I felt like just, very isolated, I think, but I learned a lot from that. And I, when I was an art director at CBS Records, I hired a lot of them to do record covers for me. And um, so I, and I could work with anyone at CBS. Like I, I worked with people I didn't know who were very famous, like Richard Avedon, or uh, uh, the names are escaping me. Uh, Herb Henry Wolf. Millions of people who did did photography, every illustrator. It was incredible. It was great. I had a wonderful time doing it. Did you, did you, sorry, Millie. <laughs> you <laughs> say, yeah, it does sound. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Sort of being being surrounded by those people. Well, yes and no. I mean, they were they were intimidating, and and some of them weren't very nice to me, um, as I recall. Uh, but but I, I learned a lot, and I also learned very fast. But it was interesting to me about it at the time was I also began rebelling against a lot of them um, and designing differently and sort of, you know, her blue balance closed everything up. I started opening everything up. Do you think that that's what sort of helped you create your style? Your your style's obviously very iconic and different and it was very modern at the time. Do you think that's that's where it came from, partly? I think that all... All break, you know, all things that change are a result of one generation rebelling against the next. And yeah. that 
if you go through design history, you can almost see what they didn't like about the previous generation. You all, we all go through lives trying to correct everybody else's mistakes um, that we perceive, and then they correct ours. You know, and and it's cyclical. And and you know, you come into uh, design at the moment you walk in the door, and you don't really know the history of everything that came before, even though you've seen it in a book. You begin yeah. to learn it throughout your working life. But the moment that you come in is your understanding of the world and you know, the way things are supposed to be. And then you slowly begin to question. Yeah, that's a very good point. It's very interesting. Did, did you know that it was it was called the Design Mafia back then? Or is that something that came later? <laughs> I don't know that it was actually called that. It was We used to call them the Machers, which was Yiddish for makers or doers or, you know, like, I mean, they were the, there were a bunch of New York really mostly Jews except for George Lois um, that hung around together. And, uh, you know, there, there was a place called um, Pioneer Moss that was a printing com company and they had junkets and these guys would go away on junkets and they'd bring their wives and you could go to resorts and hang out and goof around. And there was, there was a group of them. They were cronies and they worked together, uh, influenced each other uh, very much more so than now, like there are design peers now, but I mean, I'm very insulated in Pentagram where I have my own group. But I think that 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 sort of connective friendship was very male and and really, I think, disappeared to a degree, to a degree. Yeah, I was going to say that, actually. I wanted to ask, um, me and Mark spoke about it before, about how people sort of say that you become... You become who the people that you surround yourself by, or you you become a byproduct of that. Do you think that it benefited you, not necessarily just be just being around your husband, who's obviously a graphic designer as well, but being around all those sorts of people? I guess all of your friends were designers. Do you think that helped you within your industry because you're constantly surrounded by like like-minded people? I think it's important to. Um be with people who you think are smart and better than you because mm. it gets you it, it it helps you grow Definitely. Um, that said i have to say that i wasn't really in that group i was somebody's girlfriend <laughs> you know okay. i really didn't have i always felt like they really didn't have any interest in me you know i learned from them and sort of sitting and looking at their work or knowing about them or listening to their you know sort of male banter but I can't say I was part of that. I, when I was a record cover art director, I worked with a lot of illustrators who were friends in that particular group and what was then considered the golden age of illustration. But I worked with other illustrators that were outside the group. Um, and I, I just, I began to separate myself by the end of the decade. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Because I, I kind of rebelled against the work. Interesting. I, when I began working as an art director, I was really an illustrator's art director, and I really haven't bought illustration in 40 years. I mean, I really, you know, I, even though Seymour is a working illustrator and still surrounds himself on me, that's what he's about, I, I have not a huge interest in illustration, I have to confess. Okay. I'm interested in photography, I'm interested in problem solving in a very specific kind of way, but not, not as individual illustration, I'm much more fascinated by type designers and identity designers, I would say. So that, that my interests switched based on what I began doing as a designer. Yeah, and I suppose you learned what you disliked. 
So, which, which is obviously such an important part of all designers' career paths, doing doing a bit of things that you don't like and realizing that you don't like it. Well, I just, I was very, very young, you know, meeting that group of people. And Seymour and I got divorced when I was 28. And uh, I think when I was 30 or 31, I started my own business. And I was really outside that group then. And I had made a new group of friends that were um, more my age. And they were, uh, I met them all through AIGA. Among them was Michael Beirut, who's my partner now. And I was friends with, I became friendly with uh, Woody Pirtle, who is the one who asked me to join Pentagram later, and he's a partner. He wasn't a partner of Pentagram when I met him. He had a design firm in Texas, and I became friendly with Michael Vanderbile and the California Michaels. So that there was, I began meeting designers on my own. I was on the board of AIGA, and then became active in the community in a different way, in a different generation. How, how did the community develop in, back then? Because obviously now we've got social media, now we use social media to... Um... The thing was that you have to re- realize that when I began as a designer, uh, the design industry was not very powerful or very big, and designers still comp- com- competed with printers for work. Like the way, the way the industry worked is there'd be a printing firm and they say they'd throw in the design. Which was, you know, terrible because if they're throwing in the design, you know, how can you compete with that if design matters? There was one company in the record industry that was actually great. It was called Album Graphics and they got a good designer and they they would compete with the in-house department at CBS Records. I remember that. And then when I began my own studio, that was still going on. But after a period of time, I think in the middle of the 80s, that started to fade away. And uh, people little by little began to understand what graphic design was, but they, I think mass understanding of it didn't really begin to happen before the um, uh, computer, because of the computer, everybody learned the word font. You yeah. know, like, oh, realize, oh, there are these things that people make choices and call like that. Mostly people just called it the lettering and didn't see the difference between a serif and a sans serif and that sort of thing. Now they're quite sophisticated, but, but back in the day that I began working, nobody saw anything like that. They didn't uh, it just wasn't part of uh, national vernacular or expectation. Yeah. One thing that's like a, a huge debate is, is it, what's the difference between a font and a typeface? Like you can Google it, but. <laughs> Gee, that's really interesting. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not quite sure I know the answer to that. What is it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a trick, trick question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't you hope you have your answer. <laughs> Uh, I'll let you chew on that one. The the assumption. I don't know. I don't know that I would. I would do that. I think it probably comes from the form. I think font comes from like a certain kind of letterpress handset typography, and typefaces were because they were set. You know that you were. They were hand, the type was set. You know by a type house and. Yeah that typefaces probably became more prevalent when um, there was photo typography because you didn't, you didn't rely on, I don't know this, I may be making this up, you didn't rely on the technology, you didn't rely on the fact that it was a piece of metal to dictate the style of it. Right. In, in, in metal typography, 
there are limitations and characteristics attached to it based because based on the material it's made out of, just like there are in wood typography. Uh, when you when you get rid of that, then the limitations are restricted. But essentially, I think all typography is still in, in imitating those two forms of how type was made. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're seeing all of the all the different fonts being made in defont.com. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it's it's like a font for free people. People mm-hmm. just put random stuff up there and probably non-copyrighted stuff and just put a mixture of stuff up there. And um, there's all sorts of distressed type fonts and stuff taken from texture. It's a it's a pretty wacky place. Um, That's very actually. Sorry, I, I that in every single um, technological period I've been through. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, Colin Forbes, the founder of Pentagram, or one of the principal founders of Pentagram, was goofing around with press type in, you know, like, I think 1960 and like distressing it and messing it up. And then somebody else was doing the same thing with Xeroxes when they came into fashion. I mean, like, every period has their own form of distress. <laughs> ruining the technology of whatever that thing is. I think yeah. that's inherent of a new thing, of whatever it is. Let's see if we can screw it up. <laughs> yeah. That's part it's of good. design. I, I, I mean, I, I guess it's part of design as well, like finding yeah. something and then creating it, doing something new out of it. Um, sure. Millie, Millie wanted to ask a question about that. Like you, you talked, we talked before about um, uh, copyright, copying people's designs. Do you want to ask that question? Yeah, so I recently watched your abstract documentary on Netflix and I was really really interested by what you said about the when you read the book um, I can't remember what you said the name of the book was your favorite lettering book where you notice the the uh, image of the R's it was Robert Roy Kelly's wood type book I think it's yeah. called and how that that image of the R's and they're all the different weights was what influenced the public logo yeah. design yeah. and I personally as a young designer have always really struggled with the notion of not stealing as an artist, but obviously using things like that for inspiration. What, what would your sort of thoughts be on that? Anything. All of, all of design is is looking and seeing. All art is built on what other people did. You can't possibly seem to do that. When I saw the fact that when I looked at that page of the, I, and I'd seen it a million times because I had the book for you know, a good 15 years before I designed the public theater logo. When I, when I was looking at that page and I saw the weight of the different weight of the R's, I knew that the, the public theater logo was to, was to represent all New Yorkers. So it was a way of showing inclusiveness within, within a type style that was the logo and that the thick to thin would look good. And that my innovation was that not that I did a bunch of R's in different weights that represented type, complete typefaces, but the fact that you would begin to use that to construct a word. And that, that, that was my addition to, to that. It isn't like I picked it up and just used it. It's yeah. like it, because they had different letter forms that were based on those kinds of widths. What was beautiful about what was in the book was that the proportion of the widths when you looked at the R's were gorgeous, you know, that they looked they looked actually good next to each other. I wasn't sure that it was going to work when you change the letter forms because they won't be repetitive. Yeah. And usually it was very, now, now, you know, so many people have knocked it off and what have you that it doesn't matter. But at the time I did, it was really bizarre looking. Where the R's aren't bizarre looking, they look very ordered because yeah. they're all, they all have the same character. But, you, yeah. you know, 
that everything I've ever made in my life was, you know, based on something else I've seen. There's no originality in my work whatsoever. Exactly. It's inspiration, isn't it, rather than like downright stealing. <laughs> the room in the dark and be lonely. You know, I mean, you have to be looking at things to. to exactly. Yeah. And, and the, I, you know, everybody will say things like, oh, these kids today, they're imitating, blah, blah, blah. And I think, well, how else are they going to learn? You know, exactly. That's, <laughs> that's how you see. You look at something and you, I remember I couldn't figure out how to work with color um, when I was very young. I had a hard time with it. And I asked Seymour, who I thought was amazing with color, how he did it. And he says he looks at something else and he copies all the colors. <laughs> exactly. It never comes out the same because the scales of things are different and they're not the same thing. And everyone's got their own style as well. So even if you tried to copy someone exactly, it probably still wouldn't even come out the same. Well, I think all styles are invented by somebody copying somebody else and failing. (laughs) Yeah, that's a very good point. I like that. (laughs) Nice. Uh, One thing I've I've done this week and and well, it's ever since we knew we were going to have, have you back on the podcast is uh, watched all of your talks again <laughs> and uh, and everybody's watched the abstract and, and all sorts, which has been like Paul show week over here. But, um, <laughs> but uh, one thing we, we tried, to, we, basically we want to ask things that you haven't talked about before and it's very, very hard because you've done a lot of interviews and yeah. given a lot back. But uh, one thing you did mention is the drugs that you took when you were growing up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Just want, to, just want to share any any uh, advice on taking drugs or how many drugs you took? Or... <laughs> I was the 60s um, and I did live in a drug culture and um, I used to drop acid in Fairmont Park. Um, on, uh, I grew, you know, I went to Tyler School of Art in Philadelphia and there was a big park of hippies and I would go with a group of friends and, and we would trip on Sunday and then I would student teach on Monday and be in the middle of the class and all of a sudden the kids were sort of around, you know, they couldn't tell what was, it was sort of fun. Uh, there were no disasters, you know, like that, that it was dangerous what we were doing. Mm. I, you know, I can't see doing it now. And I, I really did it at that sort of very experimental period of school. But, you know, I, I smoked marijuana. Um, I never liked Coke much. I tried that in the 70s, but I just never liked it. Um, but I didn't like the psychedelic drugs. I thought they were fun. Yeah. What era to grow up in? Tell us. <laughs> what's the what's the best rave you've ever been to? What's the best rave? You've... The best what? Yeah, what's the best rave you've ever been to? Rave, you know, like a a dance, like a disco. Oh. <laughs> you know, I used to really like in the in the seventies. Also, I like going and dancing in the at the mud club in sneakers. You know, like I really enjoyed that. I didn't like Studio 54. I tried too hard to be chic. It was, it was actually not, not great fun. There was a couple places in um, Philadelphia that we went to that had the name the Electric something or other that were not the Electric Circus, but it would have it had a name like that that we used to go and hear horrible loud music, and we were we all loved it. You know, I mean, <laughs> it, it was an absolutely vile experience, but at the moment I did it, it was fun. Yeah, it's the atmosphere, I suppose. <laughs> I, I really did like to dance at one period. And the mud club was great because you could, you could go in, you know, like a pair of sneakers and like really jump around. What was the music? What, what sort of music was it at that time? I think that was early 80s. Hmm. Like ABBA, things like that? Well, I'm sorry. 
Were you in? Were you into ABBA at all? No, they were. No. <laughs> when they were early and then then they then they people started to appreciate it you know things that i didn't like came back around yeah i suppose so so appreciate it now more than it perhaps was at the time (laughs) all types all types of things that i thought were awful at the time or that that i thought were uncool i'm sorry nothing's coming to mind but there's a lot (laughs) you'll send me an email the next time i am I run again. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that, oh my God, we thought that was terrible. Now it's great. Yeah. And my tastes in design changed. You know, like I hated modernism. Now I love it. Hmm. Do you think the acid helped your design career? Or? <laughs> <laughs> it may have helped my teaching. I don't know. <laughs> um, I think what was really great for me um, in retrospect was the times that that I was in a generation that thought they could change everything, that anything was possible. Uh-oh, here comes my dog. <laughs> oh, bring the dog on the podcast. <laughs> Mimi. <laughs> no, she's scurrying about. Um, the idea that you think you can do anything, um, even if you're arrogant about it, <laughs> Uh, she has this thing where she climbs and it's usually because there's going to be some kind of a change I'm going to get rid of her bless her my dog is the same there's so many good dogs and cats on this podcast it's great Yeah. (laughs) well there you have it you're in my house that's what happened (laughs) Uh, no I think that I think that the um the ability to think that you have possibilities is the most important thing. Without that, she's back. <laughs> <laughs> she wants to be on the podcast. That's why. <laughs> oh, no, she's under the, she's under the table. She's okay. Yeah. Wants to be with you. She does. <laughs> well, if you could do anything differently, would would you change anything at all from? Uh, growing up or or how would you relate actually that's a totally different question but yeah would you do anything differently uh growing up as a designer well every now and then i think i would have liked to have been an architect and um i didn't put myself in a position where that would ever be a possibility because i hated math and i thought that Mm. measure and therefore there was going to be math involved and i didn't really i didn't really understand what architects did or how they how they designed or thought about design and when i became involved in environmental graphics i know i really i really love it um definitely has the crazy she's climbing up on this window now (laughs) (laughs) she does this i don't know if you've ever seen the dog do a thing where there's a high pressure and that she's they start to really get nervous because they all right they feel the uh, temperature changing. Here she is. Can you see her? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have quite a nervous dog. It might be because of the pressure. We never really know why it is. She just gets nervous. <laughs> she's trying to climb up on my painting ladder. Oh, bless her. <laughs> yeah, she's crying. She loves me. Now. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, <do> you want- <laughs> it's just add her in, I suppose. <laughs> This is a new experience for me, having my dog 
have a freak out attack in the middle of a podcast. <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> There's no rules to podcasts. I deal with it. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> I mean, you're welcome to bring her on. Yeah. Whatever will calm her down. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't hit her though. <laughs> I love that map. Yeah. It's so cool. It's got so much detail in them, is not they? The map painting. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, really cool. I love the colours. So different from her normal work, which is normally so like blocky text. And we're just talking yeah. about the map <laughs> on your wall. Oh, you're in my studio. You want to see yeah. it? Yeah. We'll give you a tour. I can hear the dog. She's outside. <laughs> oh, bless her. Okay. Oh, what I do? I just knocked you off the screen. Oh. We can still see you. Oh, we can... I can't see you there. Well, uh... can you see what I'm showing you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is a painting. I'm painting hurricanes. Wow. So this it's... is uh, North America. Yeah. Oh, wow. I'll pull back so you can see more of it. Oh, I love the colours. They're amazing. I was just saying, yes. Mark, how different your map work is from your like usual type work. It's beautiful. This is uh, Miami. Now there, you're looking, the paintings are about 10 feet by 10 feet, I'd say. And then I have a horizontal one that I'm working on, which is Hurricane Sandy, but I haven't painted the hurricane yet. This is... Wow. How are you going to paint the hurricane? Uh, I do it with the dotted lines. Right, okay. It'll come right over the topography. The way that you see, you see it on Miami. Mm. Oh, I see, yeah. So that, that's that's the path of the hurricane. I haven't done it yet. I'm doing this is I paint with a complete back black canvas, and then I build up layers of complication and typography. I see. They are really clever. They're okay. amazing. You can just stare at them for ages. There's so much to read. <laughs> well, you don't need to. You don't need to read it. Yeah. How do I get you back on? You sort of went away. I just says. Uh... Are you on a MacBook? You in? Oh, wait a minute. Wait, I got it. I got okay. it. <laughs> it was like one slipped over, but you could see them in the show. Yeah, we could see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I never understand how the camera works. Yeah. The personal work like that, is it, do, you ever have, um, do, you ever, do you ever feel like you need to get, get it monetized or, or somehow commercialize it? Because that's one of the things that some of my listeners felt. I sell it. You do sell it. Yeah. Two galleries. I thought you knew that. Yes. Yeah, it didn't have a sold. I sell them with serious money, and I, I make silk screens of them, and we sell those as well. Oh, wow. I'm supposed to be, it's supposed to be coming in July. I'm, I'm painting an art car um, this summer, which is very exciting. They're sending a Porsche, and it's going to get. Wow. That would be so cool. That's a really cool project. It's pretty cool. And, you know, I, I, I've done commissions. I think if you go into the Graham website, you'll see something called Metropolitan High School, which is a 2,500-square-foot space that was That's covered. a really cool project. It looks amazing, finished. I painted the whole space, you know, but 
so there, you know, like I, I do monetize it. I, it's not part of my design practice. Like I keep them deliberately separate. Um, so that I'm a designer in New York City and a painter up here. And you're in, I'm in Salisbury, Connecticut, where my weekend house is. The problem is with the, the COVID, uh, hideaway up here is that I haven't painted more. I've painted less because I can't conduct design and painting in the same space. It kind of ruins everything because the pacing is so different. So I'll spend the whole day either talking to my team or talking to a client or designing something and then explaining it or having a meeting or, or doing this. And it's the opposite of the way I paint, which is really um, solitary, slow, um, complete inner it's an inner activity, not an outer activity. So it's been really messed up by being here. Definitely. I do both the design and sort of the painting stuff. And I completely understand what you mean. They're completely different pages. Like you're in a complete different headspace to do each of the things. How do you normally split it up? Do you do like a day in the office, like, I don't know, Monday to Friday in the office and then painting at the weekends? Or do you do? I was actually doing four days and coming up uh, Thursday nights. And since I've been here, I've been working five day weeks in graphic design because I, because all of this nonsense with the computer takes so much time. It yeah. like from the time I did it, so it took away some of my work time. I wanted to stop. I got to figure it out. I really feel like I lost yeah. something since I've been doing this. Um, not that that's the biggest world's problem, but but um, it's been depressing for me. Yeah, I can imagine. It's difficult to sort of adjust to the new way of life, isn't it? Especially when you're used to working from home or used to working from home part of the time and then everything sort of encroaches all on one. It, it, changes, it changes the activity. You know, if the activities start to overlap, and that's bad. It's bad for the work. Paula, do you mind just like tilting your laptop a little bit so we can see in the middle? <laughs> Thanks. Nice. Um, but yeah, this, this is something that we're interested in. It's like devoting your life to, to design and, and creativity. Um, like, is there any is there any time where you just completely switch off? Well, I used to use painting to switch off from design, but right now now I'm sort of trapped. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you take a trip, you you go you go on vacation, you do play a sport. Yeah, I mean, I do what I'm sure what everybody else does. Uh, to switch off go to the movies yeah those sorts of things i re i re listened to um the last podcast that you did with mark in uh, before coming on here tonight and there was something that i picked up that you said about how anytime you have a career in the arts uh, whether it's design or music or performance or anything like that you have to give such a big part of your life to that which i completely understand obviously being a young designer and especially when you're starting out in the industry and I, I suppose it probably goes on forever you you do you, your evenings are taken up by it your every waking thought is pretty much taken up by how you're going to solve the next design problem was that whole concept something that you came to realize early on in your career or was it something that you realized during education and was it something that you sort of were happy to embrace or did you have to learn to live with it that's a good question um I think the thing is this, that to make something really good takes work. And that if you want to invent something, it takes work because you have to invest the time to make the discovery. 
And that if you expect to go in and have a nine to five job and do your work and go home and the work is going to be wonderful, forget it. It's probably going to be compromised. It'll probably be mediocre. Uh, it will probably never make a breakthrough. Um, it may be able to enable you to earn a very good living, um, have a happy staff. But if that's what you want to do, that's something else than from what, what I want, what I want to do. Um, and uh, I think that there are different levels of dedication to it. And I think that it results in work. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. You know, I mean, it's sort of, I don't really know anybody who really invents and makes things that isn't really kind of obsessed and completely involved in it. I just, I just have never seen it. I've never seen somebody who, who, you know, came to work and went home and did an incredible volume of brilliant work. Not that yeah. it's just that I don't know anybody else who did it by going to work and coming home. And I know people who did it. So, so it's just, it's, it's a way of life. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's yeah, interesting to see I'm that. I'm always, always uh, amused by members of my family who say, this is your job. <laughs> I always feel like, what job? This is that's interesting because I'm always relating it back to sport, and we see athletes always talk about dedicating their lives to, to the sport, and then they have to retire, but um, and then they you know, do commentary or whatever. But like literally, yeah, dedic dedication and, and dedicating their, their life to so they get successful and so they can be the best. And yeah, um, I, I guess it, I guess it's yeah, like you say, similar to designer. You have to you have to do that if you want to be the best designer you can. As you say, yeah, it's not a job, is it? It's a passion. It's when when people say to you, How, "How's the job?" It's like, no, more how how's the life? I'm the most miserable when I have a series of projects that I know the expectations are such that I can't make them particularly good. Hmm. And that there are many of those and you know you do them to make money uh, but if that was all I did I'd go crazy because that's not something that's that interesting how do young people get out of that I know everything seems very exciting and very new when you're a younger designer and you're trying to get all the money and all the projects you can but how do, how do young people create stuff for fun in a sense like as in they get given a brief and trusted <laughs> I think um, most people go off and make things on their own and then do do commercial work to make money. Um, yeah, you know that's where I always see. I mean, that's what I did. I'm not most of the work that made me famous was pro bono. I mean, I've done the sign the public theater work for 25 years for free, just simply yeah. what I want with it. Yeah, that's that's the reason to do it, and it's, I like the theater. It's a good theater. They they're terrific community, and um, they're happy to let me do it, and I love doing it. Loves doing it. We love that we have it in house. It's great. It's great to work on in the middle of a series of crummy projects. Um, oh yeah, that's cool. You want to keep your hand in it. You want to be practicing at the level you want to practice, and you also have to pay bills. So you know, you make decisions to balance things in a certain way, or you make a decision to make less money. Whatever you determine, you want to do. But but to to assume that you're going to to come into work and and you know come in at nine and go home at five and have accomplished something that, that is of interest in a way because it didn't exist before, I think is an unreasonable expectation. That's interesting. So 
sort of best. Be arena, but I don't want to practice. <laughs> I mean, who could do that? You can't. Yeah. No, exactly. Agreed. So it's sort of like having that balance between the the stuff that keeps you going, the the commercial stuff, doing some crummy client work, but then the balance of that with the passion projects where you have sort of all that creative scope and you can do exactly what you want with it. I suppose that's where the balance, you've got to find that. Well, actually, I think that sometimes the crummy client, client work is you find out it doesn't have to be so crummy. And yeah. Interesting. yeah. <laughs> that's the best, actually. Yeah, I can imagine. You, when you can make something terrific that should be terrific. Yeah, that's definitely definitely good client projects. Yep. Well, one thing that um, Lance Wyman talked about when I chatted with him is uh, he, now that he's you know, done the amazing projects, he's done the um, Olympics, he's done the World Cup. He's, I mean, they're, they're my dream client, just uh, dream projects to do. Huge. Um, but now he's done that, he wants to focus on social issues and you know, we've seen recent events, um, some amazing artwork that's come out of this, and some fantastic uh, banners and uh, placards, placards, placards. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you know, the signs that people hold up. Um, and what, what is your, what's your next goal? Do you have any goals left? Do you have any things to that you want to strive to do and accomplish? I want to make that art car. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, I get things. Uh, <laughs> I really love designing for New York City, and um, I'm working on a project there now that will, you know, exist for a hundred years. You know, like these these sea walls, and and um, I like that I got to design for the Parks Department and do the High Line, and, and you know, I think I want to continue to, particularly about now that New York City is going to be in rough shape. I want to work for New York. Mm. that's cool do you think those projects only come at a certain time in your career or, or can you is there a way of doing them younger I know we don't have the experience and you don't you, you have to build up a certain level of experience but well you work out you get them quicker for me <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know that they they're going to learn learn it and go and do it probably for the rest of their lives if they want you know so that's how, you know the, the thing is that as a young designer, um, you'll make more discoveries because you know less and you have to be ignorant to make discoveries. If you know how to do something, it's hard to do a new one. Um, if you don't know what you're doing a little bit, you'll, you'll find a new way to do things. But the problem is you might not be able to have the confidence or the ability to get them made. And that, that's why older designers and younger designers pair very nicely. And that the way to get experience is to get on a project that you'd like to work on with an older designer that you admire and, and learn from them. And then stand on their shoulders and do the next thing yourself. That's the way. That's, how, would you, how would you advise young, young designers to sort of get opportunities like that to work with? Where, where you work is very important. Where you work for is very important. And the work at that place is very important. It's very hard as a young designer to, like break, to go to work at a place that where you don't really admire the work or the, or the people who are doing the work there particularly and assume that you're going to make huge change. You're less likely to do that. You're more likely to 
find yourself in a situation where you're working in a place with people you do respect, where good work is already happening, become part of that group. And then you go on your own. But that's that's probably the best way to start as a young designer and develop a, a good body of work is what's worked in the past for so many people. Some people go to places, it doesn't have to be a design firm, like it might be, you know, working at the Sunday Times magazine, or it might be, uh, you know, you have such a wonderful, edit, you know, going to the Guardian for a period of years and being part of that 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 situation, or getting into um, some agency that does certain social cause work that has been terrific. I mean, but, but looking and finding out what you think is terrific and try to try to work there. That's the old tried and true method. And then, if you when you have the nerve and enough. Um, experience you go on your own good advice thank you the wonderful thing about being a young designer is that when you're young you don't really have to care about what kind of bed you're sleeping in you worry about the mattress that much because you're young and you're resilient it doesn't hurt your back you know so you don't think oh this mattress isn't as good as this other mattress i can buy to get older that stuff matters. And what's so fair about life is you don't earn much money when you're young. And then you gradually begin to earn more money and you need it because your back gets bad. You know? <laughs> or something like that. I mean, these are silly analogies, but this is in fact inherent that this is your time to take chances. Yeah. Stopping you. Unless you have already got married and have a million kids, then you're in trouble. <laughs> Luckily not in that position. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, this is that's great because that's, yeah. that's definitely got me on the um, got me thinking. I, I feel like I feel like I'm in that first job now where I'm, I'm on the right path. I feel I feel very fulfilled by what I'm doing right now, and so and obviously I want to do football and sports, uh, be be a big designer and do the Olympics and all all sorts. But working at a big football club right now is is feels like the start, and I yeah, it feels great. I mean, it really resonated when you said that, so it's good. Yeah, and I'm. <laughs> straight out of uni trying to find that that job get get into somewhere so hopefully I can find something that is going to be like that that's going to inspire me and make me want to create the amazing work you gotta stay with it though you gotta you've got to um commit yourself to it yeah yeah no of course is there is there a, a level of um what's the right word uh, I don't know, attitude or um, uh, I can't think of exactly the right word that you think like young designers have these days. Because I look at some of the people, like, even like myself, like starting a podcast and thinking they're the best designer in the world. And, like people, like <laughs> there's a lot of young designers out there like that have ambition, and it's and it's maybe like maybe it's a bit arrogant. No. Do you see that at all? No, always snap rags. Yeah, total snap rags. <laughs> <laughs> When do I learn? When do I learn that? When do I learn not to have that? Come up and experience of deep humility where you realize you don't know it all. I mean, first you start out imitating your heroes, and then you want to pull them down, and that then you realize that it's not so easy to invent. And and then you begin to to look back and have appreciation for it, and by that point somebody's already being snotty to you. <laughs> and it's it's the, it's the cycle of life. We'll have to make a diagram of snottiness. I like that yeah. definitely. <laughs> 
It's your job. Don't feel bad about doing it. (laughs) (laughs) I think that that definitely is a thing. Like sort of managing the one one minute I'll be massively overconfident and think, yeah, I can do this. I'm fine. And then the next day I've got the worst imposter syndrome ever and thinking, why did I ever become a designer? I have no idea what I'm doing. So well, trying to find I, that balance in the middle. That's an entire months of that. Yeah. You know, sometimes you just have bad periods where you're down and you don't you don't do very good work. And it's humiliating, you know, and, and then, then you get it back again. I mean, these things are cyclical. They go up and down. I mean, it's a long career. And people design for years and years and years and years. It's not something that you're doing for five weeks. You know, it's a, mm. a lifetime of work. So things change. What I think is to get back to sort of the snarkiness of young designers, but really I've had a couple of experiences of, um, uh, you know, internet stuff like, you know, Twitter or Instagram less so, mostly Twitter uh, or, or somebody's blog like brand new where, where people get into a rant about a piece of work. And if your client sees it, it's very unnerving. And it's very bad for design because you can you can undo something that was hard to persuade people to do, and they'll go they'll 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 pull back to something really safe. And that designers have to learn that they're all in this community together, and that the goal is to elevate the expectation of what something can be, not rip it apart. And you know, if you're out with your friends and you're snarky as hell, that doesn't matter. If you start doing when you start doing it publicly and you do it to a piece of work in a public arena, you're really doing damage. That's a big one, especially on Twitter. Yeah. I think uh, I think there's too many designers giving their opinions on big logo branding, and and especially, uh, yeah, I, I just, yeah, especially when a big logo comes out or a big new redesign comes out, and then. Yeah, people just giving their opinion left, right, and center. It's just um, thinking they know best. Yeah, yeah. Well, they don't know any of the brief, don't know any of the uh, background behind it. Yeah, I, I had that happen on. Uh, it's very interesting, actually, because it was sort of funny. I learned a lot from it when I designed the new school identity in Parsons uh, about four years ago. It was really smashed all over the internet, and uh, the. Um, when I designed it, which took a year, it was a very political job, and 40 people in the school had approval over it. It was like the deans of, 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 the, art sc- of the art school, which is Parsons, the dean of the new school, the dean of these other schools that were called Lang and Mass, things you never heard of. And then um, board of trustees and donors. I mean, it was a, and I would come, come give these presentations against this identity, which I have to say was fairly radical because of this, uh, uh, Algorithm we can we we using three weights of typography. I don't know if you remember it, but it was it was pretty uh, radical at the moment we did it, and the students rebelled against it, and they mm. were really mad. And the school had me stand up and answer mean tweets in sort of a podcast thing I did, which was sort of amusing, but I really hated doing it. <laughs> and then. Suddenly, it all went away. Like everybody decided they liked the the identity, and it all went away. And it went away because the seniors graduated, and the next class had come up, and they embraced it because the seniors hated it because I changed their identity. And the next, you get a damn about the seniors before them. This was their school now. So, and it was really an eye opener how that worked. 
now it's sort of establishment, you know, it's been there. Um, but the, the notion of the, that kind of, a, you know, massive online activity that is so destructive. I mean, they could have really ripped that thing down. Wow. Uh, sorry, sorry to hear that. Um, no, but, it, wasn't, it wasn't bad in the end, and I had 40 yeah. approvals. They had to stand by me. There were 40 approvals there. I mean, they were <laughs> part of the process, and it was, it was very considered. But it's really a very dangerous thing to do because you don't even know what you're killing. You know, like half the time you see something in some ridiculous way online, you don't even know what you're looking at. You haven't seen it in the, you haven't seen it in the city. You haven't seen it in action. Mm. You're just an idiot with a finger. There's many, um, many people out there like that. Uh, if you were young, if you were a young designer, had social media throughout the young, their, their twenties growing up in, in the, in your, as you let me phrase that. If you were a young designer growing up with social media, how do you think you would have uh, used it? Um, and would you be, yeah, how would you use it? Would you be surprising all your, all your opinions about everything or would you be more reserved? How, how do you think young designers should use their platforms? I have to say that's it's a really hard question for me to answer because I, have to, I, don't, I don't understand social media a lot. Like to me, social Facebook to me was always like suburbia. Like I grew up in suburbia, and suburbia had everybody had to dress the same and be the same. We all lived in little boxes, and we all said nice things to each other, and we all shared pictures, pictures of the kids and their families and their dogs and everything. That's what Facebook is like to me. It's like you know, and then, and then people say like, you know, somebody's oh, it's my birthday, like you know, <laughs> it's their birthday. That's nonsense. I don't believe it in suburbia. I don't believe it on Facebook. You know, so it's sort of it's sort of this um, another virtual social relationship that I don't know what it gets you. But when it's negative and political and people are doing bad stuff on there and they're bad actors, then it's exceedingly dangerous. So, you know, it's hard for me to imagine wanting to participate in it because I, I had a Facebook account initially. I was told I was supposed to accept anybody who wanted to be my friend, and then I couldn't. I didn't know who anybody was, and they weren't friends. So I, I, I then I tried to clean it, and I couldn't clean it because it kept coming back. So then I just dropped it. But I didn't like it even when I when I tried to pay attention to it. Instagram is I'm too lazy to do because you have to find things and put them up. I'm not really <laughs> to find things and put them up. But I want to make things. I want to. I have Pentagram and I don't need to self-promote. So I don't want to stick my stuff up there. You know, if, if Pentagram does it, that's great. Um, Twitter is tempting because sometimes I just want to respond to something, but I don't really want to respond to people who respond to me. So it's not worth it. <laughs> but I can't person either. It's just the way I am. In the end, I think my problem with all of it is that in, it's not communication in in relationship to talking to other people it's self-promotion and i would i could see using it and developing a style of it when i have my own business to promote my business but i can't say using it on a personal level and a pentagram as i said it's taken care of for me so i don't have to do it yeah, that is a, it's an interesting, interesting point because someone, as someone growing up with social media, you know, <laughs> looking back at old old Facebook posts or looking back at old tweets and stuff like that, it 
it's uh yeah it's just rubbish it's like it's, it's just stuff I also mean you know like kids who are going to college have to put up what school they got into and announce that stuff so because they're because their friends announced it and there's all this peer pressure that makes students commit suicide i mean come on it's horrible it's mean hell why for what yeah i agreed i think a lot of people would agree that it's probably the bane of their life social media but where it's such a big part of today's culture and especially for young designers the self-promotion thing is kind of important so all kinds of things in in social behavior that have been disgusting and gone away (laughs) you know and and maybe this will too (laughs) it's not you know i i'm nervous about it because it's an artificial existence and cruel and look at our president you know that's what that gets you yeah yeah scary um yeah i don't know i just i've been thinking a lot about social media and and how i use it and since getting this new job not not being allowed to post certain stuff not being allowed to post opinions on football i don't understand why i was posting my opinion on football no one cares like you say if it's someone's birthday no one cares like only the people around you that really uh, you can have a conversation with and care about your your opinions on the football match but so yeah there was no point doing it and um now that I'm not doing it and now I'm, I'm being considered about only posting my portfolio and only posting my work and the podcast, it's, um, it's, it's been, it's been a new, a new a weight off the back, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah do, you, hmm. do you, do you, do you feel good doing that? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a good step away from it a little bit, although I do find myself still scrolling to, past time i think i think a lot of your social uh, social media is addiction um and just, it's mindless and just... as well isn't it it doesn't require any sort of attention or energy <laughs> things like uh, brand new for example it's a site that yeah you know, i always thought that the designers had a lot of free time they didn't seem to be very busy it's a little worrisome <laughs> okay, i guess you could say that about this podcast as well <laughs> But uh, no, yeah, I mean, I've got a full-time job. <laughs> I do, do personal work as well. Uh, but um, This was your job. <laughs> yeah, well, in a way, I wish it was. <laughs> but um, no, I, lo- I love, yeah, it's, yeah, I, yeah, I got, I got so much going on. <laughs> but I still have time. Can't make excuses. But. When you say, as we say, yeah, uh, it's, not, it's not a job, is it? It's a passion. So you don't, well, don't mind it when you love it. Mm-hmm. I, thought uh, doing, I thought you were doing it because you wanted to. <laughs> well, that's it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm definitely not making any money out of the podcast, so I must be. I must be enjoying it somehow. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's um, it's been good. It's been good. Um, yeah. Do you have anything else you want to want to chat about, or, or anything that's on your mind right now? No, I'm really. I think I'm done. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's been been on for an hour. So I guess that may be the first of your podcasts where the, the dog had to be gotten out of there. <laughs> it's not actually. It's a funny thing. <laughs> um, Pretty normal. Well, we, we can't even specialize in podcasts where dogs come in. Yeah. Very good niche. <laughs> yeah. That's, well, we, well, we're done, right? Yeah. Can I ask you one more question? One last thing. Okay. How, how do you want to be remembered? 
I have no idea. <laughs> Discover some book one day. I mean, I, it was uh, it was funny. There, do you know who C.P. Pinellas is? No. Okay, she's an American uh, graphic designer who uh, was a big magazine art director in uh, the 50s. She was married uh, twice to an advertising guy named Will Burton and to a designer named Bill Golden who uh, invented the CBS logo. He's the original designer of the CBSI. Um, she was the first woman to be inducted into the Art Directors Club Hall of Fame and the first woman from the United States to be inducted into AGI, AGI, uh, International, it's the Alliance Graphic International, it's an organization of designers. And I knew her, I knew her in the 70s, and she, she is probably 40 years older than me, I guess, something like that. And, you know, she died, I think, maybe by 1980. And when it came to famous women graphic designers, for some reason she was never on anybody's list and nobody seemed to remember her, and that, and that, which I thought was crazy. And you'd hear it, people hadn't heard of her when there were design conferences and they were talking about women in design. And then this group of women uh, went to an antique store and found a cookbook she'd drawn and brought it out into public view as if they had discovered this unknown woman, even though there was people alive that actually knew that she wasn't unknown. She was actually exceedingly famous. But it shows you how fast death wipes away your reputation. And she was being, she was, she's been resurrected now. But it was by people who didn't have any knowledge of the history of graphic design, because that's the only way they wouldn't know who she was. And other people who don't have the knowledge of the history of graphic design seem to be learning from these women who should have known who she was in the first place and didn't know for, and, and saw and identified it. Now the lore is that she's been this rediscovered graphic designer. And it's weird to me. So I don't know what to expect with death. You know, like you can get one way really fast. You can be rediscovered or you can just not worry about it and be dead. <laughs> the best thing to be. Good way to think about it. Don't really mind either way. <laughs> Well, at go. least you can say you've got a Netflix documentary. People will remember you from that too. <laughs> I'm sure everyone's always on that. Netflix. <laughs> yeah. I, have, I hope that's not what they remember me from. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm only joking, of course. <laughs> but yeah, yeah thank you. Things. Thank you very much for doing this again. I um, appreciate it. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. It was lovely to speak to you. I'm passionate about what you do. Definitely. I appreciate it. Always. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Creative Waffle Podcast. Millie, how did you find your first ever podcast? Slightly nerve-wracking, considering it was with Paul DeShare, of all people. But I thought it was really good. We had a really good conversation, and there was some real like golden bits of advice from her as well, which I'll definitely be keeping hold of going forward in my design career. Like the drug Thank use. you. Yeah, oh, that one's key. Yeah, you know. But yeah, big thank you for having me on, because I really enjoyed it, and it was a great opportunity to get to talk to her as well so yeah no this, yeah. this is the point of the Cheers, podcast Mark. i think i think we're going to try and get more uh, more people on and, and co-host the podcast or even do one on their own um because it's, it's a platform now where you've got you know younger designers listening and they want to ask ask questions as well to people like paul to share so yeah we get some more people on yeah, i'll reach out to more people and uh yeah thank you very much for yeah, listening. i think it's a really cool idea yeah yeah, yeah.
Thank you for listening and thanks for having me on. There you go, that'll end it. Sorted. Perfect. (laughs)